0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong.
1: I want to tell you about a sponsor. It's making today's show possible. Made so many shows possible for us over the years. It's Squarespace. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. they got beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. If you do get stuck you won't, but if you do, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head to squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks Squarespace for everything. Here's the show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Hey. Hey you guys. Evan who's on the show, man? This week, Please go I t- quickly. There's a guy
1: who's starting a chainsaw right outside my window, but it's <laughs> off right now. Just say who's on the show. <laughs> okay,
2: here we go, Aaron. <laughs> this week, I talked to Lori Gottlieb. She is uh, a journalist and a therapist. And uh, she does some fascinating writing at the intersection of those two uh, crafts. She is a longtime columnist for The Atlantic, where she writes a column called Dear Therapist. Before that, she was writing a column for New York Magazine. She's written lots of different. Features and uh, she has a book out called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It came out earlier this year, and I really wanted to talk to her about it. It's about her patients in her practice and also her own pursuit of therapy. All these these stories are woven together, and it's quite gripping. And I I, I enjoy talking to her. I have heard this therapist as guest. First therapist as guest, I think so. I can't remember. I mean, some of the. Some of the interviews are like therapy, particularly I Max's mean, I, I interviews. Know, I know
1: Max use, Max often uh, plays the person getting therapy on the podcast. <laughs> I know. I feel like it was, uh, <laughs> you guys are really coming on my corner here, having a therapist on the show. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, I feel like Max should have done this interview and gotten a freebie here. <laughs> if you want people uh, to listen to your inner thoughts without paying a therapist, why not start an email newsletter? You can do it with Mailchimp; they make it easy. You don't even pay until it hits a certain number of people, so uh, it's uh, it's a good time for uh, for everyone. But now, here's uh, Evan with Lori Gottlieb.
2: Lori, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you, thank you so much for having me. It's I'm happy to be here. So
2: great to have you here. We have more to talk about that we could possibly fit in. I feel like partly because your latest book, which is called, uh, maybe you should talk to someone, but I wanted to, I feel like you've also had, as is sort of layered into the book, you've also had a truly unique kind of journey into uh, being a writer or being a journalist. Do you, would you say, do you identify more as a journalist or just as a, writer and therapist like do you self-describe as a journalist
3: i yeah i mean i sort of have a hybrid career so it depends on the moment yeah you know if i'm on an airplane i will never say that i'm a therapist because the person will talk to me about their life for the whole time like for a free (laughs) therapy session so i'll always say i'm a writer which is nice and ambiguous if i say i'm a journalist sometimes people you know have a story to pitch you um, yes, I've experienced but that. But I really feel like I, I came from journalism. And so even though I write books, I think internally I identify as a journalist. I think as a therapist, you're almost a journalist. I just did um, a TED Talk and I talk about how I feel like I use journalism. I use editing. I use all those like interviewing skills as a therapist. So I think, you know, at heart, I'm a journalist.
2: But in a way, when I was reading, you know, a lot of your columns, and also when, particularly in this book where you go through the process of how you you sort of undertake therapy, it seems like you also have special tools that most journalists don't have in terms of real professional training and experience in terms of listening to people and drawing people out and finding the spaces to talk to people. Does it feel that way to you? Like, if you do something that's purely journalistic, do you sort of feel like, Uh, I'm bringing my therapy work to bear on this or you try to to get out of that framework
3: I don't think it's a therapy framework I think it's just a how do humans connect Mm. framework and I think that as a journalist you have to know how to do that one of the things I think young journalists do is they talk a lot and if you just listen it's in those spaces where people are thinking so let them think. And then they'll say something really interesting. And it's not manipulative. It's not like you're trying to get them to say something that they don't want to say. They actually do want to say it. You just need to give them time to process what they want to say.
2: So let's I want I want to start actually back before we get too far into your process and the differences in therapy. You were not always a therapist. You were not always a journalist and writer. You had what seems to me to have been an accelerating trajectory of a television career. And so, first, I want to know how you got into television. Like, what took you into television to begin with?
3: Yeah. So, I was always interested in story and the human condition. And I loved the way... This was before TV was what it is now. Like when you were so a kid, you mean? When, as a kid, I loved TV. I loved it. I actually... I loved film and TV. And I really felt like, like a good novel, right? That there were all these psychological insights... In story in those ways and so um, when I was in college I started doing internships in the entertainment business and LA
2: were you in college in LA no
3: I was first I was at Yale and then I was at Stanford Mm. but in the summers because I grew up in LA I would do these internships and then when I started working after college I did film development and then I later moved over to NBC And it was this golden year at NBC where um, two great shows premiered. One was ER and one was Friends. So So, Some (laughs) of the most successful
2: shows ever made, I would assume.
3: right. It was the the beginning of the reign of must-see TV, Thursday Night Dominance for NBC. And when I was working on ER, we had a consultant who was an actual ER physician, and I would hang out in the ER with him a lot, and I loved... Being there, you know. I mean, I think there was and I think that's where the journalism comes into. It. it was like we were telling these fictional stories on ER and they were great. But to see the real thing and to be there for those real stories, that was really what hooked me. And then I I went up to medical school because of that. And but
2: but so I want to pause there because yeah. what was it for someone who was interested in TV or grew up maybe thinking about wanting to be in TV, I mean you landed at a point where That dream, it could not have been coming more true. I mean, we're talking about working on these huge, huge hit shows with people who went on to be the biggest stars of the world. So, what was it about that that was not enough for you?
3: I think it wasn't that it wasn't enough. It was that there was something so much more about the real stories. Mm. Nobody comes to an ER because they expect something to happen. So, you know, you go there because something was an emergency and it was a surprise. And so people were at these inflection points in their lives. And I felt like being there and and having that experience with that person, it wasn't just watching it, it was being a part of it so when you're when you're doing tv you're, you're watching it right um it goes out you're not interacting with with the viewers in the same way but when you're in there on this very intimate level with a person who comes in and they said oh wow i have this really bad headache and oh it's a brain tumor that's that's like a harrowing moment and you're there with that person and there was something about that that made me want to you know have that in the every day of my life
2: So you decided to go to medical school.
3: I did. I went to medical school. I went back up to Stanford. And when I was there, my professor started talking about what they called this newfangled thing called managed care. And my whole dream about having these, you know, being the family doctor who guides people through their lives and being involved in the stories of their lives, it seemed like that was going to be really difficult in the the new model. And so that's when I left to be a journalist. And I started writing when when I was in medical school. I started writing, doing pieces about the experience. First, I did pieces about the experience of getting ready for medical school. And then I did pieces about the experience of being in medical school. And I was telling all these stories. And I realized that I liked the story part. And so um, that's when I left to really be a journalist. And I did that just purely as a journalist. I had one career for 10 years.
2: And when you first started doing those stories, were those pieces that you were kind of writing for yourself and then you thought, oh, maybe I'll get these published or were you pitching them places? How did you get a foothold in the world of journalism from a perch at medical school?
3: I just cold pitched them. You know, well, first, I, I wrote for Slate when I was applying to medical school. They had this thing called the Slate Diaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember those? Yeah, of course. Um, and so I did the diaries of, you know, a few days of my life as I was taking the MCATs and as a, as a French major, um, <laughs> um, trying to get into medical school. And then from there, you know, I just, as a freelancer, I just pitched things.
2: It, it seems in the current journalism environment, like almost insane that someone would drop out of medical school. Partway in, having already done how many years did you do? Medics? Two, two years, two full years of medical school is a lot of work, especially like isn't the first year like insane? For my it experience is, you with know, friends.
3: Stanford was great because they let you do what's called an early clinical. So the first two years of medical school are generally preclinical, where you're all in the classroom and it's very intense, and then the second two years are the clinical years where you're in the hospital doing rotations. And Stanford let me shadow doctors and it was really interesting to me and they also let you do this thing they had this thing called the medical scholars in the arts and humanities Tobias Wolf was at at Stanford and you could take classes you could take writing classes so i audited some writing classes oh, wow. when i was there so it sounds really weird that i would you know be writing and in medical school and then leave um, <laughs> but you know i i don't think it was uh, I, I think when you're still that young, you're not thinking like, how am I going to make a living necessarily, <laughs> which I should have thought of. It was it was more I'm following what I want to do.
2: And you you sort of over those years worked up to writing big features for magazines. And, you know, I feel like the first one I was looking back, the first one that I distinctly remember which maybe was not the first big one, it was the first one that I remember coming across was the Atlantic story, which you then turned into a book that was sort of like settling for, I can't remember the exact It's uh, called title. Marry
3: Him. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I did not pick the subtitle, and actually it's not about settling. <laughs> um, which, it's it's sort of this thing where I think people think that, you know, I, it's funny because the magazine piece, I think that there's a kind of humor that's my natural sense of humor that works really well, in my pieces, but when I was trying to write sort of satire, in the marry Him piece mm-hmm. it just fell flat people took it completely straight and they all said oh my god you want me to marry the guy with halitosis and i'm like <laughs> no that was a joke and so i realized i can't write that kind of thing you know like that's just i'm bad at it and i thought it was a great piece by the way that's what's so ironic i thought it was a great piece i thought oh this is great like people will get the humor in it and they'll get the serious point that i'm trying to make too yeah. because there was a there was a point to it which was not to settle but it was to say you know, are we really trying to kind of pick partners who don't exist? Um, You know, have we gotten to that place in our culture? And is that part of the reason that so many of us are finding ourselves having so much trouble, you know, in our late 30s, and we're still single? But it it wasn't, and you should settle. Uh Uh, So it was trying to get people to examine something that was going on in the culture. But I did it in a way that people didn't understand. And then in the book, I think I did it in a way that people really can understand because people who have read the book really love the book for the most part. I mean, you know, most of the mail that I get for the book is really, really positive from people who have read it, and they find it really useful. The problem is that the unfortunate title from the magazine piece followed the book, even though we tried to get that not to happen. Really? Oh, there was a huge fight with the publisher. I said, I cannot have the word settle on this book because it is not about settling. And they said, well, we're not going to publish it. And at that point, it was too late for me to find another publisher. I had no choice. I mean, my choice. I did have a choice. My choice was don't publish the book and try to resell it later when it would be really difficult. And then I had no guarantee that it would get published. And I really felt strongly that the book would do a service to people if they could get past the title.
2: Well, it sounds like you feel like they did uh, Well, I
3: Well, in the beginning, they didn't. I mm. mean, people were so angry with me. People wrote to me things like, I hope you get cancer. I mean, it was these vitriolic emails.
2: This was one thing I was going to ask you, though, because it feels like I kind of vaguely remember that being a controversial story, but it feels like it landed right before kind of social media really took off. Like, yes. that story today... What would happen if you published that story today? It it would be insane. I think. I don't know. You. What do you think?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, it it went viral in the way things could go viral pre yeah. the way the internet is now, pre social media. So in mainstream media, it went viral, and you know, I think I tried to explain in mainstream media what I was talking about, but people weren't willing to listen because they were so. And I understand why. I mean, nobody wants to settle, and that was not my message, and that is not my message. <laughs>
2: And in writing the book, did you feel like you were trying to undo part of the magazine story in doing the book? or
3: I felt like I had a really important message. I still feel like I do. I think so many people do benefit from that book, but they have to read it. And the book, it's funny because the book isn't my opinion. It's actually as a—it's a piece of journalism. It's a very deeply researched book about what makes for happy, lasting relationships and marriages. And so... You know, people said, oh, you're saying everyone should get married. And it's kind of like saying, you know, if you wrote a book about tennis, you're saying everybody should play tennis. No, I'm not. I'm saying if you are interested in tennis, this might help you improve your game. If you are interested in finding a lifelong partner, this will help you. But I'm not saying you have to have a lifelong partner. Don't read this book if you are not interested in having a lifelong partner.
2: <laughs> right. <And in> <laughs> but they were
3: attacking me for saying, <laughs> here's how you could, you know, here's a how-to, a journalistic how-to. Here's what all the research says. About having a happy lasting marriage. And then later, you know, Aziz Ansari's book came out, you know, all these other books came out that were so well received that have the same research that I have in my book that people never read because of the title.
2: That sounds very frustrating.
3: And they loved his book. You know, they love and it's literally the same people are interviewed, the same studies are cited. And it's just presented in a different package. His was called Modern Love, which is a much better title. (laughs) That was why with Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, one big stipulation when we were deciding on a publisher was I said, you know, I have to be able to choose the title.
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Lori and Evan on hold for just a second. We got some sponsors this week, and that's who makes this show possible, makes it possible for us to make the show for you to listen to, so now uh, I'd like you to listen to a little bit about them. One sponsor, Native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use every day. Their products are filled with trusted ingredients, and their natural deodorant, which is what I'm here to talk about, it's no different. Native deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc, and with ingredients Found in nature, like coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch. The formula contains simple ingredients you'll actually understand and comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women. I, right now, currently, am wearing eucalyptus and mint. Feels natural and it feels good. It also smells good. That's one of the reasons why it has over 9,000 five star reviews. There's also no risk to try it. Native offers free shipping and free returns or exchanges in the US. Go try it out. You got no risk and uh, it's all upside. You're gonna smell great. For twenty percent off your first purchase, visit native deodorant and use the promo code Longform during checkout. Again, that's native deodorant.com, promo code longform for twenty percent off during checkout. Smell better, feel better. Thank you native for sponsoring the show. And thanks also to Squarespace. You know I use Squarespace for uh, the website of my uh, podcast company, it's called Pineapple Street, and uh, we use Squarespace, and we recently had to make a whole bunch of changes to the website, and it was so easy. Everything looked good, it worked, and uh, it was like, we did it like a, in a matter of minutes. Of course, I would be building my website with Squarespace. Squarespace has been sponsoring this show for years, and we thank them for that, but also, it really is the best and easiest way to do it. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, Squarespace is the tool for you that got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with just a few clicks. So you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. I actually made the website uh, years ago when we started the company. I don't know anything about this, and I was able to do it, and it actually looked like a totally competent. That is really what Squarespace will do. If you don't know a lick of code, you can still make a beautiful website. It's all optimized for mobile. There's nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade. They've got incredible 24 seven award-winning customer service. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Now it's your turn. Head to squarespace.com slash long form for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash LONGFORM, offer code LONGFORM. Thanks so much, Squarespace, for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Lori and Evan.
2: So then you had you had another story that went crazy viral, Atlantic mm-hmm. Story, about parenting yes. and about kids and your kids ending up in therapy and it covered sort of like modern parenting. And now it sounded like you had an opportunity to just capitalize on that virality, write a book, go on the talk show circuit and be a parenting expert. Why did you say no to that?
3: Yeah, so that piece was called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. I think a lot of the pieces that I write, I really feel like I want to do a service with them. And you have to realize this was all coming at a time when all of a sudden I was going to with Mary Him I was thinking about becoming a therapist and with Your Kid I already was in that process. And so it was really important for me, I think, to take something in the culture and say, here's what's going on and here's a different way of looking at it that might help you. And so um and I think that's why they go viral. And so with How to Land Your Kid, it was the age of social media, and it did go viral. Nuts, yeah. Um, And, of course, publishers then wanted me to write that book, and they wanted me to write it for—and I can say this only because I turned it down—for an obscene amount of money. And people thought I was insane for turning down an obscene amount of money on a topic that I had already written the magazine piece, so it would be pretty easy to write the book. But I felt like that would be cheesy, you know, like, I don't think the subject matter is cheesy. I feel like the, I'm really proud of the piece. But I feel like to kind of jump on the the bandwagon of hyper parenting or whatever you want to call it over parenting, helicopter parenting, when there had already been so many really good books about it. I didn't feel like we needed another. About a year later, the New Yorker did this piece, and they said another book about overparenting would just be cruel, which I, <laughs> which was exactly my sentiment at the time, and so I felt like it would be just crass commercial, you know, crass commercial book that I didn't really have my heart in, and I, I didn't feel like I could do that. I felt like it would be so inauthentic, and when you, when as you're going through that process of becoming a therapist, you, you know, you're sort of oriented toward authenticity to the core, and I felt like it would just. Go against every value that I had to write that book. So I said no. And I said, I'm really interested in what's going on with the adults. You know, the subtitle of the other piece was why our obsession with our kids' happiness might be dooming them to unhappy adulthoods. And I said, I want to write about why our obsession with our own happiness might be dooming us to unhappiness. So I, I had a deal for that book, not by the way, for an obscene amount no. of money. They were really not interested in <laughs> that didn't book. Just hand they you the were kind of like they were kind of like here for this like minimal sum of money that like the most minimal sum you can get for a book. Yeah, we'll let you write it. And I thought, well, at least I'm writing what I want to write. So you know, and by then I was working in my therapy practice, and so I started writing that book, uh, and I, I just I couldn't get anywhere with it because. As I was doing more with my private practice and now I was getting past my internship and now I was in my own practice, I felt like it just couldn't like the study, the way that I would write that book, it couldn't reflect the nuance and the richness of what was going on in the therapy room. And so every time I tried to sort of capture that, I, I couldn't really do that in the context of the book that the publisher wanted me to write. And so I started calling the book the miserable, depression-inducing happiness book because I was literally getting depressed as I was trying to write it and I could not write anything. It was like I would look at the page and I would go on Facebook and everybody would ask, how's the book? How's the book? And I had yeah. so much shame around the fact that I had turned down this lucrative parenting book that would have been, you know, an easy book to write and, you know, it, probably a bestseller. And I thought, God, I was such a moron for turning that down. And now I can't write this book. And so whenever people said, How's the happiness book going? I'd be like, yeah, it's going, it's going. I had not written a word. Eventually, I told my publisher that I was going to cancel the book. I didn't want to do the book. And this was after, by the way, like two years of not writing the book and just, you know, wallowing in anxiety and shame. Um, and that was partly because my agent at the time—and I say at the time—was um, <laughs> um, kept telling me, "If you don't write this book, you won't write another. Just write this book, and then write the book you want to write." Horrible advice. Wow. Also, the um, agent
2: really was saying the quiet part loud there. Usually, they—they kind of skirt around that. They don't—they don't explicitly tell you if you don't—if this one's not a winner, you'll never work again. Like that's what the writers usually say to themselves.
3: Well, she said. I will have egg on my face because you didn't write the other book and now you're not writing this book. And it didn't occur to me that, wait a minute, I'm the client. It didn't occur to me. I thought, oh, I'm never going to write again. And I love to write. And I thought, this is going to be really bad. So I better listen to the professionals. And finally, um, through therapy, <laughs> as you see, you know, so th- <laughs> there's sort of this meta aspect to maybe you should talk to someone where I write and maybe you should talk to someone about the fact that I was going through this you know, kind of crisis of, of meaning in my life at that time. And part of it was I don't want to spend time on something that doesn't feel meaningful to me or to other people. And then at the same time, there's the reality of you're a single parent and you need to pay the bills and you're just starting out in your private practice and you have this unpaid internship and graduate school loans that you need to repay. Um, And if I cancel this book, I'm going to have to return the money that I spent supporting us during my internship. (laughs) <laughs> which, you, which you then did do i had yes yeah, so i had to return the money yes
2: so we kind of pass over quickly you you decided to become a therapist so what was the prompt that led you to go back to school you were having a, a flourishing career as a journalist at this point you're writing big stories right in the Atlantic so yeah so so
3: we did skip over that yeah so i was really enjoying being a journalist and i still am a journalist i just do it less often now and i have the weekly Dear Therapist column in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So I do that. But when I was working as a journalist, I was working all the time. It's a very solitary kind of work. Um, You're interviewing people, you're doing that. But a lot of it is with a laptop in front of you or on the phone. And so I had a baby. And for any parents, um, they might relate to this. You know, when you have a baby, at least my experience of having a baby was I really needed to talk to human adults during the day. (laughs) Like, I really needed that for my sanity. And as a journalist, you don't get to do that as much. Um, And so the UPS guy would come with the tons of deliveries that you have when you have a newborn. And I would detain him. And I would be like, hey, how about those diapers? And, you know, do you have kids? And he would avoid me like the plague. He would, like, back away to his big brown truck. And it got to the point where he would tiptoe up to my door and quietly place the package on my doorstep so that I would not open the door and try to engage him in conversation. And I thought, wow, I got to do something about this.
2: Can I just say I deeply identified with this portion of the book? That's my, actually my current daily experience is like, I'm more like cafe guy. Like if I'm talking to the barista yeah. Kind of like uh, we have other customers. And I'm like, no, I, the only people I talk to all day are on the phone or like a one and four year old when they come home.
3: Like, that was exactly my experience. <laughs> yeah. And so I called up um, the dean at Stanford Medical School and um, she was sort of like this very accomplished researcher and physician who was also like camp mom. She was just like you know, the medical students loved her. And so I called her up and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, you're welcome to come back, but you'd be coming back with a toddler, you know, in residency, and you would be doing something where you're probably going to be prescribing selexa in 15-minute intervals all day long. You'll be doing mostly medication management. You can do talk therapy, but... You know, why do you want to go through all this when you could get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do talk therapy, which is what you want to do? And it was the best advice that she could possibly have given me. And it was in that moment that sort of everything that I had done all coalesced into one thing where it was like, yes, story, the human condition. As a journalist, I was helping people to tell their stories. As a therapist, I can help people to edit their stories, to change their stories. And I can be immersed in the human condition in, in both of these things. So it wasn't that I wanted to not be a journalist. It was that I wanted to add this therapy career to what I was already doing.
2: But it's a significant undertaking to uh, – how old were you when, you when you decided to go back?
3: I was in my late 30s.
2: Late 30s with a baby. With a baby. Returning to school. Yeah. Taking on loans. That feels like an overwhelming thing to kind of tackle.
3: You know, it's kind of like when you asked me, wasn't it crazy to leave medical school to become a journalist? Uh, you know, there were practical considerations, of course. I mean, that's why I was so stressed out about returning the money for the book. And it, was, it wasn't was even that much money. Again, they gave me like no money for that book. But to me, it was a significant amount of money to have to get back. But it was more that I was so sure that I was doing something that would be viable later. And I was so sure that as I was going through this Part of me about, you know, what do I want to do at midlife, I knew that I had to do something that I cared about. And so I always followed what I cared about. Sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't work out. But I think everything that I did en route to getting where I am now, you know, led to all of the things that I care deeply about.
2: So when you you write in the book about sort of like starting out your practice and how this surprised me, this statistic that way less people or significantly less people are seeking therapy than did at, at a certain point in the past. Am I remembering that correctly? That there was some discussion oh, among right, your, right. your classmates that it was difficult to get a practice off the ground because there were sort of less people looking for therapy than there used to be. And you needed to kind of market yourself. Yeah. So, I,
3: yeah, I wrote this piece. Um, it was a cover story for The New York Times magazine. And it was about how we have to brand ourselves as therapists and how that's anathema to <laughs> i think you know our orientation as therapists we don't think of ourselves as marketing people we think of ourselves as you know having these very intimate conversations in these quiet rooms with people and a lot of people i think you know wanted the quick fix they wanted you know if i can take a pill i'd rather do that if i can go to a life coach i'd rather do that if i you can give me 3 tips for how to change my life i'd rather do that and so i think that it's hard for a lot of therapists starting out. It was hard for me starting out to find people who wanted to do what we were, who wanted to engage in what we were offering.
2: How did you get over that?
3: Well, you know, as I wrote in the piece, it was, you know, I, I think I was very conflicted in the way that most therapists are conflicted. It was like I had a writing website, but I didn't have a therapy website because they were different identities to me. And so the idea of putting up a website and advertising myself as a therapist felt creepy. <laughs> I just it was just like as a writer it was so natural, right? Yeah. And then having a therapy website felt like crossing some kind of line. And so I had separate websites. I had the therapy website which I thought was very professional and kind of low key, and then the writing website where you put like, yeah, I was on the Today show. <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah. different things. And then it wasn't until later when I realized that you know, they're sort of the same thing. Like I I can't really split my identities that I am a writer who is a therapist. I am a therapist who is a writer. And so that's, now I have one. I didn't, until I had, maybe you should talk to someone, I never had one website. I always kept those identities completely separately. But now when you think about this book, it's so much about me as a writer and me as a therapist that you can't really separate them. And I think that the cohesiveness of them Is really important because I'm not these two different people if you come to me for therapy you know that I'm a writer if you want to assign something to me as a writer you know I'm a therapist
2: and you even write about your therapist the therapist that you go to in the book and Google stalking this therapist and finding out about his past and digging up little tidbits is really, really good uh, journalistic practice. Journalistic research—you kind of like find these things about his. I use my parents. journalistic chops <laughs> yeah. to
3: Google stalk my therapist. That is true.
2: But it occurred to me that even before the websites came together and everything, that you were a a Googleable person for your early patients. I mean, you had written. A bunch of stories, but you'd also written a book about your childhood. Like you had written things that your clients could find. Yeah. Did you find people bringing up with you, you know, your writing or coming to you because of your writing earlier in your practice?
3: What was interesting was when I wrote in the beginning, when I was a journalist for all those years and when I wrote other books, I never, you know, never in my wildest dreams did I think about being a therapist. And so, if I had known that I was later going to become a therapist, I wouldn't want all of that information out there.
2: What kind of thing do you think you would have held back? You know, there's
3: nothing that that I feel protective of necessarily. It's more that I think it's just a lot of information about me that patients don't need to know. When I wrote maybe you should talk to someone, I was writing about a specific time in my life. And I felt okay with that kind of disclosure. And also, I should say about maybe you should talk to someone, because when I canceled the happiness book, I didn't think I was going to write another book. And then when I decided to write this book, and no one thought anybody would read this book, I thought like maybe three people would read this book, but it was the book I felt like I had to write. And so I kind of let it rip in terms of my personal life. (laughs) I don't mean that I wasn't aware that, you know, I was putting this out publicly, but that... I think I might have cleaned myself up a little bit if I knew how many people were actually going to read the book. And, and I think the fact that I didn't clean myself up is why so many people are reading the book. So that dichotomy that you have to hold, which is people want you to be a real human, and at the same time, you also have to have boundaries.
2: Well, one of the things that shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, was that I feel like I've been to therapy, and I feel like people who especially have been to therapy, but any thinking person will at some point realize that they get stuck in patterns of thinking or that they are sort of follow these tracks in their life and they're they can't get off of them in different ways and they and then when they go to therapy they kind of expect certain things from a therapist that a therapist not there to provide like advice on everything but what was surprising to me was that you are a therapist and then you found yourself going into therapy but also doing those things like you I guess it makes sense, but I would think that you with your training would kind of just be constantly applying all those things, giving yourself therapy in some sense, if that makes sense. Like that was one of the things in the book that kind of stood out to me was how when you were with your therapist, you were just a patient.
3: Yeah, when you're training to be a therapist, you need to do 500 hours of therapy for licensure. Mm. And you feel very much like the patient then because, you know, hey, <laughs> what do you know? You're an intern. And then once you have been in private practice for a while and you've seen a lot of people and you go back to therapy, it's very hard to take off your therapist hat. And at the same time, you're still a person In the room. And so very quickly, the artifice of, oh, I know why he's asking that. And I'm going to answer it this way, because I want to come off well, um, goes away, because you can't really hide in that way. And it's not going to help you. So, um, but I do, you know, I feel the way that I think my patients feel with me. Like when I Google stalked him and I found out that his father had died at a relatively young age of a heart attack and his father had been like a marathon runner. And I had been waxing poetic in my therapy sessions about my close relationship with my aging father and how I was so glad we had this time to say goodbye and all of that. And I felt like I can't talk about that anymore. It's going to cause him pain knowing that he didn't have that time with his father and then I was worried I would slip up and you know finally I confessed to him but my patients slip up with me all the time that they've googled me you know they'll say like you know what it's like to have a 13 year old boy or you know whatever it is I never said that so you know (laughs) you know what it's like you know oh well you grew up in LA you know that's like I never told you where I grew up Um, so I know that they've googled me
2: so I have so many questions about the part of the book because we haven't really even talked about the book is not just about you going to a therapist. It is actually, the larger part of it is portraits of your patients over time. And it's actually, it's very suspenseful. I found the book very suspenseful. I couldn't put it down. I wanted to know what happened to these people. It has a very a certain momentum to knowing their stories. So I had a lot of logistical questions like journalism crossing with, therapy, one of which was very basic. Like, do you tape record your sessions?
3: I don't. So it's different from journalism in that it's recalled conversation. I take no. I mean, I have chart notes, but I'm not doing chart notes the way you do journalism, right? So the chart notes are, you know, and by the way, when I was doing chart notes for these patients, you know, it wasn't that I ever thought I was going to write a book about them.
2: That was one of my questions too. At what point did you sort of
3: So I should say that the people that I chose were people that I was no longer seeing on a weekly basis because I didn't feel that I could go into therapy sessions with them. Even if I was writing about something that happened five years earlier, I just felt it would be too blurry. I couldn't think, I'm writing this chapter now about this person, even though we're talking about something completely different, and this happened a long time ago, it would get very blurry. So there was no way I could do that. So that was one thing that I think helped. And in terms of just, you know, how you do dialogue... You do it from what you remember and you do it from what you have in your notes. But there's when you live and breathe a person every week for years, you hear them the way like when you're writing a television show, right? You hear the person, you know, the way they speak. You've heard them so many times.
2: So it's almost like writing memoir, like even those parts are closer to writing memoir than.
3: Yeah, I didn't tape record my own sessions with my own therapist, right? right? But I'm quoting him and I'm quoting me.
2: So you answered one of my questions, which was, were you thinking about writing the book when you were talking to the people? But how did you choose these particular patients when you did arrive at the point where you said, "Okay, I'm going to write a book about this? What was your sort of methodology? How many did you choose from? Mm -hmm.
3: I wanted to choose people who looked very different on the surface in terms of age, gender, personality, history, the problem they're coming in with, the way the therapy unfolded, because... and I'm the fifth patient, right? So there are four main patients and then I'm the fifth patient and I look very different. We all look very different from each other. And I think that what I was trying to show is something that I see as a therapist, which is that we're all more the same than we are different. So underneath whatever presentation we have, we're all so incredibly similar. And so often we feel alone. We feel like I'm the only one who thinks this, feels this, experiences this, and yet it's so universal. So I really wanted to show that by having people look very different and then seeing that, oh my God, they're just like me um, in a lot of ways. There's a piece of me that is like this person. So that, that was part of the process. And the other part of the process was I only wanted to use people who I, for whom I felt this telling their story would benefit them. So there were some stories I thought were great stories, but I didn't tell them because I felt like they would not be well received in book form by those people.
2: By the, by the patients. Patients themselves. Yes, yes. And But the patients you did choose, you, I think I read in the introduction or the preface or what whatnot, that you went to them and asked their permission if you could use their stories.
3: Well, so I have, so because I was a journalist before I was a therapist and I, I wrote often about anything and everything, I uh, had in my informed consent, I still do, that I can write about anything that they bring up as long as I disguise their identities. Mm-hmm. and. There have been a handful of people who have said no thank you. Um To the therapy. They've just walked out right. and said, I'm not Well no, they this. just didn't I, they know before they come in, I don't waste their time. Uh, I mean this is something that they, they're aware of before they even meet me. And you know, but interestingly, I, I thought more people would be uncomfortable with that, but they're not. It's kind of like here we have a microphone in front of us and you kind of forget that the microphone is there. I think I don't know if you saw that recent show, um, Couples Therapy, on Showtime.
2: No, I've seen it. I watched in treatment when it was on. Okay, but so so
3: Couples Therapy is is a docu series, so it's it's real people uh doing couples therapy, Um, and you know I don't know if they just kind of forget the cameras are there, but I think for the people who are coming to therapy, they've seen my journalism before, so they knew that I was responsible about how I protected people's identities. But I think it's a whole different ballgame when you're writing a book and you're following the trajectory of their stories in such detail. So I had to be rigorous in, especially in this age of the Internet, in disguising their identities. Yeah, Um, well,
2: I have to say, when I was just poking around, various looking for old articles of yours and this and that, One of the things, there's a character named John who it's an incredibly compelling story, what happens, which I won't give away, but one of the first things when you Google Lori Gottlieb, it's like, Lori Gottlieb, who is John? Oh, you're kidding. Which, yeah, I feel like evidence is what you're talking about, which is people read the book and they're probably like, oh, I wonder if I can figure out who that guy really is.
3: Yeah, and you won't be able to because... So just as an example with somebody who's not a patient in the book, when I do Google stalk my therapist... I find out that I see this Yelp review for him, and he gets one Yelp review, and it's a five-star rave from this woman who had given, like, one-star reviews, and she has thousands of reviews up there. And she is so disappointed in everyone and everything, and she's so critical, and they are, like, all caps, exclamation marks. Everybody is a disappointment to her. And then... One of the things she writes about is she's on vacation and she's on the beach and this thing cuts her foot and, you know, the hotel is horrible for allowing this thing to be on the beach. And the thing was so funny. And I could not include it. I had to say it was a rock because... If I had put what it was, you could Google the item and that, and then you'd figure out who she was, and then you'd figure out who my therapist was, and then in the book you see that one of my patient's spouses ends up going to my therapist, unbeknownst to me at first, and then you could figure out who that person is, and maybe you could figure out who my patient was. So in this age of Google, we had to be so careful. So what's been changed are all those details where you can put in a search term, Mm. Um, but what has not been changed is the arc of the stories.
2: And- have you been in communication with the people who yes. ultimately were in the book? Yes. And what what has been their reaction to it? Oh,
3: I think they're all very pleased. And I think it's been interesting because it's one thing to experience something. And it's another thing to read about the experience of it. And I think just like it was very therapeutic for me to write about something that happened and then see new things that I hadn't seen then. I think they also saw new things or they saw things that they already knew, but they saw them in a in a fresh way. And I think it was really interesting for them to see more about my experience of being in the room with them.
2: So you, you, one of your patients, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but we can edit it out if so, but one of your patients dies. I mean, you write about that. You've written about it in The Times as well. And that whole experience made me think there's a lot of talk among journalists who cover certain topics and whether it's school shootings or war or whatever about their own mental health and You kind of talk about how being a therapist is partly you're taking on people's pain. Like people generally come in, they don't come in with just uh, all good news. Like they come to a therapist because they need something and they're in a place of often pain. How do you deal with taking that on? Like what does that do to your mental health, I guess?
3: I don't think that I take on their pain. I think that what I do is I hold the hope for them that they can't see while they're in pain. So they're in this place of extreme pain, usually when they come in. And sometimes they can't see something better for themselves. They don't know what it looks like yet. All they want is, you know, help me not to feel help me not to feel this pain. And what they don't realize is that You know, you can't numb out one feeling, you can't numb out the pain, because then you'll numb out the joy, right? So it's like, we need to feel our feelings. And sometimes it's overwhelming for them to feel their feelings. So what I'm holding for them is the part that they can't see right now, which is the hope. And you know, is it hard sometimes when like, you're talking about Julie in the book, who is this young woman who comes back from her honeymoon and discovers she has cancer, and then ultimately, she has terminal cancer? You know, and I go through this process with her as she's dying. We have consultation groups where we talk about our cases every week, but you also go to your own therapy like you see me do. And that's where you talk about what it's like to sit with this woman that you've come to care so much about and she's dying.
2: And the other part of sort of therapy, like I feel like as a therapist, as I understand it and reading the book, it's not as an advice giving role necessarily. But you've written all these columns, um, one of which is like, uh, what is your therapist really thinking? Like you wrote columns for New York Magazine. And
3: I have a weekly have a Dear week- Therapist advice column in the Atlantic. Right, and you have that a runs every
2: now, yes. Yeah. So, but those are more, I mean, you're approaching it as a therapist, but they're closer to an advice column than...
3: Right, you know, they're different processes, but I would still say that my advice column is kind of like a non-advice advice column, <laughs> right. which doesn't sound very helpful, but I hope that it is. <laughs> It's that, you know, this is what my TED Talk is about. I actually read a Dear Therapist letter in my TED Talk, and I talk about how we're all unreliable narrators. And even when people come to therapy, they're unreliable narrators. But in the therapy room, I get to ask follow-up questions. I get to know them over time. I get to help see, you know, sort of like, what are the pieces of their story that, you know, what are they minimizing? What are they emphasizing? What are they leaving in? What are they leaving out? Who are the supporting characters? Are they a distraction? You know, like, you know, I get to do all that editing in the room with them. When I get a letter, I just get a letter. I can't do any follow up. I can't explore it at all with the person. Um, And so what I do in the column is I try to help them to see their story from a wider perspective. And once you've done therapy long enough, you can imagine what that wider perspective might look like. And so I take the information from their letter, but then I say, here's what you've given me, but here's all this stuff that you're not looking at. And that's what, it's almost like a free therapy consult. It's like, if you came for a first session and I could condense it, you know, I could take all the stuff that I'm going to do later and put it into one session. Here's all the stuff that I would get you thinking about. And then you get to make the decision about what you want to do. I'll give, I'll point you in the right direction. But then ultimately, it's up to you. And I think that really helps people a lot more than say this to your mother-in-law, because sometimes that backfires. And what's nice about the Dear Therapist column is that people will write to me later and say, I tried this and here's what happened.
2: The same people or different people?
3: No, the person, who the the letter writer, the letter writer. Yeah. You know, sometimes, as as I talk about in, in the TED Talk, that I'll get letters from two different people involved in the same situation, unbeknownst to the other person. And I get these vastly different versions of the same dilemma. And so that's why I'm not like, say this or do this, because I know that their story is kind of, you know, it's skewed from their perspective. So I want to give them a broader view so they can make a better decision about what to do next.
2: And do you feel like, so returning to the like, therapists need to brand themselves, it occurs to me that, I know when you wrote the book, you felt like only three or four people would read it, but many, many people are reading it. So in a sense, like this is your branding, like like now this book is out there. And I'm curious, like, what are the impacts on your practice? Like, do people show up book in hand? Uh,
3: (laughs) Well, I thought that because people would know so much about me that that would make them feel like I don't want to go to that person for therapy because I just have too much information. So the big surprise to me was that I get You know, people wanting to come to me for therapy all the time as a result of the book. My my practice was full before the book came out and it still is full. So it hasn't impacted my practice in that way. But just in terms of, you know, I get like 20 to 25 people a day asking to come to therapy with me, which I had not expected at all. And so um, that's been really interesting that despite the fact that I disclose so much, you know, people still want to come see me.
2: So did this book, in contrast to the happiness book, did it come easily? Oh, yeah. It?
3: I mean, this was the book that I I felt like I had to write. And when I canceled the happiness book, by the way, I really thought I would never write another book. I did not have the idea for this book. I never, I never conceived of another book. Um, this came to me later where I was writing one night just about everything that was going on with my own therapy and then some of my patients. And it was just for me. And then I thought oh, I don't know why I didn't see this before, but this is the book that I wanted to write when I couldn't write the happiness book. I wanted to... I feel like it's such a privilege to do what I do every day and what I get to see is something that I think everybody should get to see. Um, And so I wanted to just bring people into the therapy room and voila, you know, why didn't I just do that? It seems so obvious in retrospect, like that was the book that I should have been writing, but I never did.
2: And some of the, the stories are... I found them to be very emotional, a real kind of gut punch at certain points. And I sort of asked a version of this already, but did you kind of re-experience them as you were writing them?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think if anything, you know, it was really hard after, you know, there's one chapter in the book, which um, I won't spoil it, but I think is, is one of the most, I think, just harrowing chapters. And um I remember being in the room so vividly when that happened and kind of, it was almost like I was reliving it when I was writing it. And I think also with Julie, since you've already talked about, you know, the fact that she does die in the end, that, you know, just the going to her funeral and the saying goodbye, it was so difficult. And I think to write about that and experience that again, you know, where I could really just cry. I cried a lot when I was writing the book. I also laughed a lot when I was writing the book because there's a lot of humor in the book, but also it's not humor that I kind of put in there to be funny. It's like that's how I felt when I was writing it, because there's a lot of humor in the therapy room. Hmm. I mean, humans are ridiculous like we are. And so, you know, when you see all of our blind spots and the ways that we resist what's really good for us and how we'll make choices that guarantee our own unhappiness over and over and over, it's funny because ultimately we do get past that. Hopefully. Well, yeah, I mean, with the people in the book, you do. But people say, you know, are those anomalies? Like, do most people make the progress that these people made? And I think they do. And there's a case that I write about in the book of someone who doesn't. There's the the Becca story in the book where this person comes in every week and tells me in all different kinds of ways how incompetent I am and how I'm not helping her and yet won't leave. Um, and so, you know, and the struggle that I have with her and how ultimately I have to end treatment with her because I don't feel like I'm helping her, and I feel like I'm wasting her time. And that was difficult too, because you feel like a failure. You feel like if I could just have figured it out in time, if I could just have figured out how to get in there, I was a um, competitive chess player when I was younger, mm. and I, I it's really <laughs> random, but, um, but I, um, I feel like I use that a lot in the therapy room too, which is, you know, you float something out there and you're thinking, you know, five, six, seven moves ahead. What am I going to do if they make this move? What's my move? If they make this other move, what's my move? And with Becca, I just, every move I made, yeah, I was the wrong move. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just uh, like she was winning the chess game or it was like a stalemate?
3: It was like I was getting nowhere. I, she would just foil me. She wasn't winning. She was just preventing me from making any progress.
2: Is your son old enough now to be aware of your writing?
3: He is. He's not super interested in it. Um, He's a 13 year old boy. He's really into basketball. He's actually a really good writer himself. He vetted the chapters that he's in in the book. Yeah. So there are two chapters that kind of feature him. And he gave me notes and I took his notes. But he has not read the book. Um, Not because I haven't offered it to him um, just because he hasn't had an interest. He's read other of my books, but, you know, as the child of a therapist, I think he's surrounded by so much therapy in his world <laughs> that he's like, oh, it's a book about therapy. No, thank you.
2: Do you think you'll, going forward, always have this dual writer-therapist? Is there another twist that you see in terms of maybe, I don't know, going f- back at fully one direction or another or...
3: The reason I couldn't write the parenting book and the reason I couldn't write the happiness book was because they didn't – I didn't feel like they had the meaning, that the personal meaning for me that I wanted to kind of put out there in the world. And so I feel like everything that I do, whether it's the therapy or whether it's writing a book or whether it's journalism or writing the column, I'm actually doing a um, – a podcast in the new year.
2: Can you talk about what it what it is? Sure.
3: Yeah. Um, so Katie Kirk's producing it for iHeart, and um, Guy Winch, who you might have heard his very popular TED talks. He is going to be the advice columnist for TED, and I'm the advice columnist for The Atlantic, and we are going to be two therapists who happen to be advice columnists, and we're doing a podcast together. Just the two of you. The talking two of us. Through-
2: through advice for people or just talking to each other about we're, what you...
3: We're working on the format <laughs> right now. Um, but we're, we kind of are going to play with that sort of question of, you know, unreliable narrator and what happens when you have two different therapists looking at a problem from different perspectives. And so, um, and then, you know, we're working on the the TV series of the book, uh-huh. which Eva Longoria's company is producing. And um, the creators of The Americans, the show The Americans they're creating this maybe you should talk to someone Uh series.
2: As a scripted, like fictional version. Yes, fictional.
3: That's not, we're not grabbing patients from the room and putting them on TV the way that I did (laughs) uh, for the book. Um, But I feel like they're not discrete careers. I feel like they're all, again, what I said earlier, story and the human condition. And one of the things that has been so gratifying about putting this book out and I think really bringing therapy to people in a different way than I have before is that I'm opening up these conversations around emotional health and kind of normalizing what we go through as people. And the more that we can do that, whether it's through books, whether it's through a podcast, whether it's through TV, um, of course, seeing people, you know, one on one in my practice, I just want people to pay attention to their emotional worlds. It's important. And um, I want them to relate better to themselves and to other people. And I think given what's going on in the world today, it's more important than ever.
2: And does it ever get to be just too much? Like you said, you don't necessarily take on other people's pain, but do you ever just say, I just want to shut all this out and I don't want to hear about other people's experiences?
3: Like I said, it only happens really on airplanes. <laughs> um, when I'm in the work, there's never a time when I feel like I don't want to hear about this. Um, it's a really, really interesting process. That sitting in the room for 50 minutes straight with no interruptions—we don't get that a lot in the world today.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I do it a lot with interviews, and it's—it feels like similar but different. You know, it's the goals are maybe are different clearly, and it seems almost contrived. The interview is to try to get them to give you the information that you want as the interviewer. It's the opposite of the therapy experience, which is you're trying to get them somewhere that's good for them. Like it makes the interview feel exploitative when you light them up right next to each other.
3: Yeah, not, I mean, there are some overlaps. I think that the conversation is different in the therapy room, not because I'm not trying to get them to say something cuz i am. I'm i am very manipulative, right? <laughs> I mean, we are because we want to get them somewhere. That's so the i am game. so it, it is. That's the chess part of it. That's the strategy. There's so much strategy that goes into it. But i do think that there is something very unique about those conversations in the therapy room because people are so vulnerable and open. And i feel like there's something really You know, I can't really describe what goes on, but when somebody is really opening up to you and saying, here's who I am, here is the truth of who I am, unvarnished, it's not Instagram, it's not how I talk to my partner, it's not how I talk to my best friend, it's something completely different. And you're having those experiences and you help them to gain something from that interaction. Um, I don't think there are other conversations that are exactly like that.
2: And do you... Returning to the the idea that you you had this kind of career where you wound around and tried different things and then ended up here, do you feel like you wish you had trained as a therapist coming right out of school and pursued that or that those experiences fed into this?
3: I would have been a terrible therapist if I had done that coming right out of school, kind of in the way that there were lots of people who were like me and they had other careers and then they came into therapeutic training and it was a a much less steep learning curve in terms of how to be in the room and how to really connect with people. So, I think if I had done it earlier, I would I didn't have part of it was I didn't know how to be with people in the same way, but part of it was I hadn't lived life. And I think that you, you know, once you've lived life, you're different in the room. I know that for when I was training at the clinic and a lot of the interns were in their early 20s, A lot of people who were middle-aged or older, you know, it was hard for them to talk to people in their 20s because they felt like these people in their 20s hadn't lived life yet. Mm. It wasn't that they weren't skilled. It wasn't that they weren't bright. It was that they just didn't have the life experience. And I think that now, you know, I've lived a lot of life. I haven't lived as much life as I I hope to live. But, you know, even in treating Rita, the, the person who's about to turn 70 in the book, I felt like I hadn't lived enough life to really help her. And I had to learn a lot about what her experience was. What is it like to be that age and to have all these things that you can't change? Because I feel like I still have a lot that I, I can do between now and then, and she couldn't. Mm-hmm. So I think the more you live life, the better you are as a therapist. And what's great about being a therapist is most people don't retire. Because as long as you have all your marbles, <laughs> um, you know, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of physical exertion. And so a lot of people will do this into their you know, 80s and 90s because they like it, they want to. It feeds them.
2: Do you think you'll you'll write about it again in this way? Write about your patients, write about the experience in this way again?
3: You know, I wasn't thinking about doing that. But one of the things that happened in writing this book was there was a couple that was going to be another case that I followed throughout the book. And I had to not do them. And my editor kept saying, well, just turn it in and, and we'll see if we can cut it. And I wrote like, you know, one chapter about it and I realized this book is 400 pages, there's no way it was 600 when I turned it in and I'm like I'm not doing the couple, it's just I'm not going to do that and she kept joking, you'll do it in another book and I was like no I'm not going to do another, another book and then I realized if I'm going to do couples it needs its own book, you know it can't just be a couple inserted into these stories of these individual people because you grow so much as an individual in the context of being in a couple and so Couples are fascinating. About 60% of my practice is couples Mm. at this point. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking that if I do write another book, it'll be something like, uh, you know, maybe we should talk to someone. I don't know if that would be the title. But but it would be a book um, similar to this, but about the experience of what couples go through.
2: Well, I look forward to that if you choose to do it. And the TV show and the podcast and the columns and the myriad other things you seem to have going on at the same time. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Oh,
2: thanks. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co host, Evan Ratliff. Uh, many thanks. To Lori Gottlieb for stopping in the studio when she was in town from Los Angeles. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to my co-hosts Aaron Lamer and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, as always, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern Maria Clementi, and our sponsors Mailchimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week.